Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is Bay Curious. I'm Olivia Allen Price. And hey, you've made it to the final episode in our State of Drought series. In the last few episodes, we looked at what residents and local water agencies can do to conserve, recycle, and even generate fresh water. Today, we're going to keep exploring solutions, but this time from a statewide perspective. We're going to look at four big ideas that would help us survive a multi-year drought. We'll get started right after this. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org podcasts. And thanks. This whole series, we've been talking about how most of our water comes from a system of dams and reservoirs set up to capture the state's precipitation. So one logical solution here is more dams, right? Not so fast, says Jay Lund, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Davis. The story I tell people is if you were you know, the first engineer in California and you were going to build the first reservoir, where would you put it? You would put it the cheapest place that gives you the most water. Where would you put the second reservoir? The next best place. We've done this 1,500 times. What do we have left? Expensive places that don't give you much water. He says with 1,500 dams in the state, all the good dam spots are taken. Heck, even a lot of the bad spots are taken. But that doesn't mean that there aren't smart things we can do with our reservoirs. Ezra David Romero takes it from here with four big ideas. So the first big idea has to do with managing those 1,500 reservoirs differently. I learned how at Lake Mendocino along the Russian River. That's where I met Nick Malasavage in the middle of the mostly dry lake bed. He helps manage the lake for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. In 2019, the water was about 40 feet over our heads. He says Lake Mendocino could go dry by the end of the summer. Our lake levels here at Lake Mendocino are the lowest they've ever been for this time in the year. Even though this lake is nearly dry, it's on the leading edge of science around reservoir management. In the past, water was let out of the reservoir whether or not storms were in the forecast. They wanted to make room for more water they expected would come. But because of climate change, those storms are becoming less frequent. 
Malice Savage is helping pilot a new approach at Lake Mendocino. Conserve, wait until a major rainstorm is coming, and then let water out of the reservoir. It's called forecast-informed reservoir operations. We can sit on this water, we can continue to watch the forecast, and then you see that big boomer of a storm coming, then you can make the decision, hey, the sun's still shining, we need to put water into the river, generate that airspace for the next storm, and we're good. Malice Savage says the program works. A trial run last year allowed the reservoir to hold 20% more water during 2020 than would have previously been allowed. It seems simple. Hold the water in the lake until a storm is somewhat guaranteed. But moving toward forecast-informed reservoir operations will require the federal government to change their rulebook for reservoir management. That's a long process. Still, the tests taking place at Lake Mendocino and at three other reservoirs in the state show promise. That's big idea number one. Use the weather forecast to guide when we release water from our reservoirs. Now, on to the next. The second big idea has to do with cutting the amount of water we use to grow crops in California by half. It's a big deal because 40% of all water in the state is used to grow the food we produce here. To find out how this could be done, I turned to UC Davis water expert Jay Lund. We can have a tremendous amount of reduction in irrigated acreage. And if you take it out of the less productive crops on the least productive land, you're going to have a much less of an economic impact than if you took it out of almond. Try and imagine all the irrigated farmland in California in one big chunk. One half of the land sustains the crops that bring in 90% of the revenue. Lund says that means we can cut back on irrigating that other half, where we grow the lower value crops that use a lot of water. We're probably going to see on the order of 20% of the irrigated agriculture go out of production. This idea of crops going out of production to save water is already in motion. Right now when droughts hit, growers often overpump groundwater to make up for what they're not getting from reservoirs. That's going to get more difficult. A new law called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act passed seven years ago. The goal of that law is to limit the amount of water farmers and cities can pump out of the ground. This is to help restore aquifers and to prevent wells from going dry. The law gave local groundwater agencies until 2040 to make sure groundwater isn't being overpumped. What that means is that all the extra water they pump for this drought, they're going to have to follow some crops during wetter years in order to to refill that water. That's right. They're going to have to grow nothing sometimes, even when it's raining, to make up for water they used in dry years. This new way to manage groundwater will likely have farmers change what they grow over the next two decades. I don't think it'll be like a sudden overnight thing. I talked to Karen Ross, California Secretary of Food and Agriculture, about what this change means for what we grow here. Even though we've got it's a 20-year implementation period, it's definitely a factor in decisions that are being made now for the land that will continue to be in agriculture and for land that may be fallowed on a more permanent basis. She says more permanent agricultural products like tree nuts, dairy, and citrus will likely be prioritized because they have the highest value. Up to a million acres of land could go out of production over the next two decades. Ross says that will have ramifications for the agricultural world because each acre of land is someone's livelihood. 
What I'm most worried about are the annual crops, processing tomatoes, vegetables, melons, onions, garlic, all those things that are just the routine ingredients of everything will be the first crops that may not be planted. So there's a lot of room for the agricultural world to save water, but it's not without some pain. In short, idea number two is about rethinking what we grow and where we grow it. We need to use the wet years to replenish the groundwater we used during the dry years. Okay, now on to the third big idea. Nusha Ajami, who studies water in the West at Stanford, won't let urban users off the hook. Since the last drought, Californians are using 16% less water, but she says we still waste a lot mainly on our lawns. The biggest crop we grow in the U.S. is lawns. Next comes corn, and the difference between the two is quite significant. I know we talked about this in the last episode, but it's worth repeating because scientists say there's so much water being wasted. In one of Ajami's studies, she found that getting rid of lawns could cut urban water use in half. Lawns should be banned. Every drop of water that's used to maintain that lawn can be a drop of water that can leave in the reservoir if this drought ends up being a 10-year drought. Cutting urban water use in half is a big deal for a state with more than 14 million homes. We can have lawns at the parks, places that public as a whole can benefit from. But if you have a personal lawn that you use once a week during the weekend, then that's wrong. You should not have it. I know, I know, we have harped on lawns throughout this series, but if California were to put some limits on lawns, it would have a huge impact on urban water use. All right, one last idea to go. Okay, this last big idea has to do with using water over and over again inside our homes and businesses. To talk about recycling, I want you to meet Arvind Akila. He directs engineering for the Wastewater Treatment Agency, Silicon Valley Clean Water in Redwood City. But he's also the president of the California Water Environment Association, which represents more than 10,000 wastewater and water recycling workers in the state. My thinking is we should be doing 100% recycling. Think of this. You're washing your face. The water goes down your sink and it leaves your house. It heads to a wastewater treatment plant where it's cleaned. Not clean enough to drink, but clean enough to release back into the environment. Akila says instead of letting it go back into the environment, why not clean that water a little more and reuse it over and over again? If you just talk about Bay Area, we have over 40 wastewater agencies, on a daily basis, we are discharging hundreds of millions of gallons into the bay. He also says we can take any extra recycled water and fill underground aquifers that have been depleted because of years of drought. Still, he admits there are a few obstacles to establishing recycled water as a big solution. The first is the high price of building plants. There's a big cost uh, to build new plants, but there's also creative ideas that can be implemented. If you just extend the existing treatment plant process and add it, then the cost can be reduced. 
Apart from cost, Aquila says the other main issue around water recycling is public perception that it's dirty. That's because it was in the human body, after all. But he says recycled water is often cleaner than freshwater sources. And if you think about it, all the water on the planet is used over and over again. It has gone through dinosaurs. It has gone through human bodies. But that water is the same water. The last big obstacle Aquila sees to ramping up water recycling is that when the wet years come, it's hard to keep up momentum on projects. We have three or four years of drought, and one year it rains too much, and people forget about it. And that's the dilemma our industry has been facing for several years. We take action, and then we just sit on it forever because, oh, because it rained. I heard this over and over from experts. As soon as a drought ends, people forget about it. And that's why they say it's important to take action now, while people feel the pain of drought. That way we'll be ready for the next one. That was Ezra David Romero, a climate reporter at KQED. That concludes our State of Drought series. Now comes the hard part, doing the things. And to survive a mega drought, we're going to need to do all of the things. Everyone plays a part, from the renter with a bucket in his shower, to the homeowner giving up her lawn, to the farmer making a tough decision about the field they're going to need to fallow. In John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden, he writes, During the dry years, the people forgot about the rich years. And when the wet years returned, they lost all memory of the dry years. It was always that way. This is going to take sacrifice from all of us. In dry years, yes, but especially in those wet years when we cannot lose momentum. At the start of the series, I admitted that a part of me was really dreading putting this together. I was worried that the answers to your drought questions might leave me feeling hopeless. And there's a fair amount out there to feel kind of hopeless about right now. But it's actually been the opposite. I now know that we have all the tools that we need to solve this problem. We've just got to get to work. In the dry years, in the wet years, always. If you enjoyed our State of Drought series, please share it with a friend. We really busted tail on this one, so it would mean the world to us. This series was produced by Katrina Schwartz, Brendan Willard, Sebastian Mignopuccelli, and me, Olivia Allen Price. We got editorial support from Kevin Stark, Dan Brecky, Ezra David Romero, Isabeth Mendoza, Kiana Mogadam, Jessica Placek, and Erica Aguilar. Engineering support from Katie McMurrin and Tiff Mitchell. Next week, the Bay Curious team will be honoring Labor Day by taking a break. But we'll be back the week after that with more answers to your Bay Area wonderings. We will be sending a newsletter, though, so if you are not signed up, get on that, baycurious.org slash newsletter. Thanks for listening. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description.
Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.